Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. 
A lot of us have had basal skull fractures and some of us haven't survived and some of us have. It's a horrible deal. It, it's a mind-changing deal. How long was it before you felt like Larry Pollard again? I would say probably the Larry Pollard that my wife liked was probably four years. I was probably pretty ugly to live with for three because you're still just harping on why me. Life is good. Are we rich? No, we're not rich. But we're doing what we like. Every morning I go in, I turn the light switch on. I want to be there, and that to me is a win. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. And last week, Jordan Bianchi from The Athletic came up with a pretty major scoop, and it most definitely had a just a wee little bit to do with NASCAR history, Steve. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Johnson has bought into petty GMS racing and will run a handful of NASCAR cup events next season with that team. How about that? That is great news, not only for Jimmy and for the fans, and also, I think, Rick, for Petty. So you have seven-time champion Richard Petty. You have seven-time champion Jimmy Johnson. How about that? And you've got Maury Gallagher as owners of that organization. Now, I do not know what the organizational politics might or might not be, but how perfect sure. would it be if Dell Earnhardt Jr. ran a race or two for Petty GMS Racing, or maybe even put Jeffrey Earnhardt in Xfinity or Truck Ride? Well, I tell you, that's an intriguing proposition, Rick. No doubt about it. I could really see the fans going for that, couldn't you? Can you imagine <laughs> the diecast that would be oh. sold? <laughs> <laughs> the diecast that would be sold off of that deal would fund the same vault podcast for years. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I can see the dollar signs right now in your eyes, Rick. Steve, this week in our first segment, we're going to share the third and final installment of our interview with Larry Pollard. And this week, he talks about the up and down world of being a NASCAR Bush Series race car driver. He wins a race, but nevertheless finds himself in and out of a couple of rides. And that was before he became one of a very few people in the sport to survive a devastating basal skull fracture, an injury that he sustained while filling in for his injured then father-in-law, Harry Gant. And survive is the key word here because, as you well know, Rick, a basal skull fracture is not always survivable. Larry takes us through the painful and obviously frustrating journey to becoming Larry Pollard again, as well as the enjoyment that he finds now in building gears for late model racers across the country. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the August 13th, 1987 issue of Grand National Scene, Rusty Wallace is forced to the pits for a late splash of gas. And when I say it was late, Steve, it was late. It's about as late as it could get. <laughs> but he still scores the win at Watkins Glen. Larry Pollard 
wins the Bush Series race at Langley Speedway, but you could barely tell it from the coverage that event received in this issue. Well, that was before we had a Bush Series editor. What have you got to say for yourself, Wade? Not a thing. Not a thing. <laughs> the hauler carrying Davy Allison's cars and three crew members was involved in a serious accident as it neared Watkins Glen that weekend. Dale Earnhardt and Bill Elliott shows up on NBC's The Today Show, but Dale isn't very happy with how it turned out. No, he was not. He thought the announcer for The Today Show didn't really know racing or what to talk about. And you may or may not remember this for whatever reason, Steve, Tom Higgins celebrates his 50th birthday at Watkins Glen. Ah, uh, Rick, I do remember it. And it is a tale I will tell you for sure. <laughs> this week, we have Venmo support from Chris Riley. So Chris, thank you. Support like yours makes this podcast possible. Without it, we could not do this podcast the way that we do week in and week out. And listeners, please support the podcast by checking out our t-shirt shop over on our website, www.thescenevault.com. Click on shop, and we've got a couple of different Scene Vault podcast t-shirt designs there, and also an L.W. Wright t-shirt that is pretty sporty, Steve. Yes, indeed it is, and you need to get your hands on an L.W. Wright t-shirt. This will be definitely a keeper. Listeners, if you can support us on a monthly basis for a dollar a month, $5, $10, the amount does not matter. Every little bit helps. If you can do that, you can do so via patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. Now, you start racing again, and you're going to all the tracks, and you're running laps and running races and everything. How did you and Mike Alexander get to be friends? I... Um... I hung bodies for, and you had to make a living. You certainly couldn't make a living, you know, race car back then, you know yeah. what I mean? So we just, when we started racing together, we just were buddies. I just, I don't know what it was. It's sometime we just started talking about something and hit it off and we're still buddies. We still call each other every three, four weeks, you know, just, um, then when we got hurt, Mike got hurt at uh, snowball and I got hurt at Dover, the the head injury, the everything was really, really close. So we helped each other through that deal. You know, he had some he had a tough time with it. I did too. And we always could call each other and just what are you feeling? What do you what are you doing to feel that way? What what how do you get over this? You know what I mean? Uh, the resentment, the the madness yeah you yeah, just yeah. you know you're going along and you're you're making the stepping stones you're getting to run a little better every deal you get into and then bam lights are out and you feel like you've been cheated but you can't because we both survived and are able to keep going way better than a lot of people can keep going and so we got to be blessed you know what i mean and and that 
and he helped me, and I and I think I helped him with that whole process. You got hooked up with Hubert and Jeff Hensley at the start of the '87 season, and then that August you go to Langley. Larry Pearson leads the first 154 laps, and then you took over for the final 46, and you won. Wow. How big a deal was that to you personally? Wow, that was, yeah, that was pretty big. That was big. Um, again, didn't know how big it was until a little while later because you think it was just part of it and you're supposed to win. You know, if you don't win, you're disappointed, but if you win, well, you did what you're supposed to do. That was kind of the attitude, right? Yeah. But uh, Joe Trice there and Hubert and Jeff, all the guys that kind of been with us for about two years, a lot of the guys from Anderson Webb come up and helped us on crew in the car, so it was a pretty neat deal, you know. So and then to be the first born-born driver to, to win a Bush Grand National race, I thought that was cool. Um, yeah, there was a lot of there's a lot of a lot of spinoffs on that deal. How did you wind up with Howard Thomas for the start of the '88 season? Truth again, we were at. Uh, Martinsville, last race. Remember when Martinsville was the last race of the Bush Series? Um, driving Hubert and Jeff stuff, and I just love them two guys too. I still do. I, um, I, I think we had a heck of a good relationship. You know, we just yeah. we worked good together. Hubert was <laughs> he was one of them guys that in practice he had one of the fastest stopwatches anybody. <laughs> yeah. And he bust more stopwatch because he'd have me in practice way quicker than we were, and then we'd go out to qualify. It was on the light, so he couldn't lie, and then he'd throw his stopwatch <laughs> down and said, I couldn't qualify, we're nothing. So, but that being said, it was good. And in the last race of Martinsville, they come up and he said, man, have you come up with any for next year? And I said, well, we got the solder seal deal, and we got this deal, little deals, but I says, no. And he said, well, we got this guy coming on board. He's got $300,000. The money come into it. They had, they had X amount of dollars, and I didn't have it, so they said, man, we want you to drive it, but this guy's got the cash, so yeah. you're out. So I said, wow. And it, they were family. I mean, we, we just, it was cool. And we yeah. won a couple of races. Well, we won the one race at Martinsville. I mean, at uh, uh, Hampton, Virginia. Yeah. And uh, just should have won some more, but we had to keep blowing up motors. But that was part of the deal because we had a deal with Grumpy Jengus to, to supply us with motors to test the new connecting rod they were going to put in the new Camaro, the new Corvettes, and they wanted to put them in raw, just like they produced them. And they said, you're going to break rods, but we're going to keep putting them in there until we find one that's, that works. So we broke four or five motors, and a couple of races running really good, but you broke. And then you didn't get paid. You know, back then I was 50% of the prize money, so if you made – Eighteen hundred thirty dollars to win a race. You're, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. anyway, so I was out of a deal. I mean, I, I kind of mad, you know, kind of like kick your feet up for money. But again, Jeff and Hubert, great people. I was out, so went home, grabbed my suit, pretty alone. You know what I mean. So the phone rings, and it's Howard. Uh, um, Howard Thomas from the Zero Zero car. Oh, come down here and t- talk with us. 
wow, you know, zero, zero car. You know what I mean? Shoot, yeah, I will. So go down there. We got a deal put together. Nice man. And uh, I said, wow, things work out, you know. Built a new car for Daytona, run good at Daytona, and driving the zero, zero car. This is, life is good, right? Well, that only lasted about six, seven, eight races, I guess. And how come you're not running any better? <laughs> I said, well, these cars here, I don't understand. And the guy you got running the show <laughs> hasn't been around a long time. I said, you better give some time to yeah. to work with us to get it worked out. We're not, it's not as though we're not trying, but he, he wanted to win right away. And so... He just said, we're done. I'm going to quit racing. So it's okay. And so you get out of the car and at Charlotte, Harry gets hurt, uh, breaks his leg mm-hmm. and he was scheduled to run Dover. How much have you been able to piece together about getting into the car and the race and the accident and the aftermath? Um, some, um, and some of it's come from input from people that yeah, were there, yeah, like the yeah. – uh, um, yeah, the, it's funny. Uh, that thing, I remember going to dinner with all the guys and what I ate Friday night, and after that it's just – I'm just blank on it for about a week, you know. Where'd you go? I don't remember the restaurant, but I had, I had uh, stew beef, mashed potatoes and gravy and beans. <laughs> I don't know why I remember <laughs> that, but – at this little old place, and uh, yeah, it was just, uh, and, it, and there again, it it fell in. Get fired, put a deal together for Charlotte to run the bush race. I was on the winner's circle. See, if you're on the winner's circle, you've yeah. got to try to make yeah. every race. Yeah. So I didn't have a ride. So Tommy Houston, he knew a guy that had a car, and we put it together, and then... Um, Winter Circle Auto Parts jumped in board. They liked me, so they come in and they they paid the rental deal on it and stuff. And Bill Kirby from Central Gas, they jumped in there. And there was a bunch of people that jumped in there to get me a ride for Charlotte just, just to yeah. stay on the Winter Circle and run like crap. Just horrible day. But whatever we did, what we had to do. We stayed in the Winter Circle, blah, blah, blah. So then, uh, then Harry gets hurt, and then they asked me to drive for Dover while I'm going, Wow. That's awesome. You know what I mean? I'm not awesome that you got hurt, but awesome that I get in there to shot to drive something. And we got a good car now. You know what I mean? There's no more excuses, you yeah. know? So so uh, we go up there, and, and that deal happens. You go, gun, we got to start again. <laughs> you remember going to dinner the night before? What's the first thing you remember afterwards? I do remember some of the days in the hospital. Do I, you really? I remember um, – now, how long were you in the hospital? I think about a week up there, and then okay. we flew down. Um, and that was another neat deal. Richard Childers got his plane and flew my wife, Debbie, her mom, and myself, and Johnny Bruce back to Charlotte. I mean, it just the people were just incredible through that whole deal on the things they did. And, and we took it for granted, or I did, you know what I mean? Because he, oh, it's just the way it's supposed to be. Well, no, it people. There's a, Johnny Hayes. They went over. The response, from what I understand, was pretty incredible. No, Steve was, Wade did a story in Grand National Scene at the time about right? everybody. I mean, you had guys from RCR oh. actually came to the 
yes. from the track to the mm-hmm. hospital. Yep. You had Daryl Walter Poffer in his plane, yep. RC. I think Richard Jackson offered to pay your medical bills yes. and, and all yep. that kind of thing. Yeah. How aware of all that were you of of the outpouring of help? At the time, not. Okay. Because I didn't. You're just in Lululand. I was yeah. when I like when I Harry and Peggy said come and stay with us because I half my body didn't work. Uh, when you get a brain, a brain injury, your right side controls your left or something. And this arm and this leg and this face, my face hung down like this. And so, but Doctor Petty said it, it. You know, you're going. It'll come back. Is this going to take time? So I said okay. And then we go. And this is the other thing. When I'm at home at Harry's, just lounging around because you can't do nothing because this side of your body don't work. You know, you're just kind of, you know, your lip hangs on everything. So, but um, Senior come out and see me. Robbie Morose would come out and see me. And it was just, at the time, you don't see it that way. And then and later when you get your wits back against you, go, man, that was pretty cool. You know what I mean? So, um it's, it's it's really a different time in your brain. You're still just peed off because you got robbed. You know what I mean? And you cannot look at it that way. You've just absolutely got to feel blessed that you get a shot at another day, you know. And I got over that. I was hard to live with for a year after. But after you go, that's eh, not quite the way to do that, you know. What was your recuperation like? Were you doing physical therapy, or how did you start down the road to normalcy again? Just, yeah, just walking, just uh, exercising, just um, there's there's no real therapy for brain injuries. Yeah. You just time, and then your, your response is to look after your muscles and stuff that that you can control, and that's what you had to do. Which is, you know, keep keep trying to make it move. Keep when you did make it move, keep going. You know, and it just, uh, um, yeah, it's it's a mess. It, it's a lot of us have had basal skull fractures, and some of us haven't survived, and some of us have, and it it's just it's a horrible deal. It, it's a mind changing deal. It really is, you know, and. It's no big deal because now we did it, but uh, it's a uh, we're lucky. We were really lucky. How long was it before you felt like Larry Pollard again? I would say probably the Larry Pollard that my wife liked was probably four years. I was probably pretty ugly to live with for three because you're still just harping on why me. You know I me, mean? yeah, and just yeah, and yeah. Mike Alexander and I have talked about this forever, and we're over it now, and we're we're on to better things, and we're enjoying life. But no, I think you're right. There was four years there of just just total begrudging, just you know feeling sorry for yourself, and it's not the way to go. That's a pretty specific time frame. Was there any one particular incident that brought you out of that? Or was that just a gradual process of getting back to normal? Yeah, I 
I think it was for me just gradually, okay. probably by input from a few people that you thought the world of, just like Pollard, get your junk together, man. You're able to walk around, feel, you know what I mean? And you, and when you're high spirit yourself, you kind of, you listen to it, but you don't heed. And then all of a sudden, two or three people say it, you go, maybe there's something I'm missing here, you know what I mean? And I yeah. think that's how it gradually took over, you know. Uh, I feel I'm a different person now than I, than I was three years after, you know. Your first time back in a car, you went to Victoria and you ran at Western Speedway and as many laps as you'd made there, again, going back to your book, you didn't remember it. I didn't remember. I could not remember making a lap there. Wow. And I just, and it was, that was a hard deal because I, um, Doug Jeffries, a real good friend of mine, he supplied a car that we're going to run the Canada 200, whatever it was up there. And uh, he said, well, and it was, a, it was, it was, wasn't six and eight, eight months after the deal. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't supposed to be there. My neck hadn't healed and my lungs hadn't healed yet. And I'll be all right. So we go up there, and I get in this car, and I can't, I don't remember how to turn, what to do, when to get off, and I had to, it was the weirdest thing I've ever been. And after the race, we finished fifth or sixth, I can't remember, and uh, I said, wow, just your mind wasn't ready for it. I couldn't remember. What was your family's reaction to you going back? I don't know. Debbie was hard to read. She she was such a supporter that she'd say, "Well, if that's what you want to do, I'm." I'm and she'd be in there. She was a hundred percent. Maybe in her back mind is saying, well, "What in the world are you fooled trying to do that?" You know, mom and dad, they they were always supportive, but dad dad did say that. He says, "Man, he says, give it some time. He says, just yeah. you know, this this ain't the right thing to do." You know. You did run a handful of Bush Series races in 89. Were you comfortable at that point, or were you still trying to search for something? I think I was I think I was getting that back, but I wasn't a good race car driver anymore because I, I, I hit too hard. Yeah. And you can fool yourself by saying it doesn't bother you, but if you got any sense at all, it bothers you. And if you go out there and, and you don't drive it in there 103%, you might as well get out. And Bill Kirby from Central Gas, he was a co-sponsor on the, the ham car. And he said, oh, man, he said, well, let's just put something together here and we'll put a bush deal together. And he bought a truck and trailer and supplied some cars. and and But I had to do all the work. I had to actually build a shop so we could work out of it. I couldn't afford to pay anybody, so yeah. you kind of did it yourself. Yeah. Well, we built the car. We had Barry Poovy and and um, some other guys come over and helped us, and for nothing, just because they're great guys. We go to the racetrack. We get our weekend warriors, so to speak. I drive the truck and trailer to the racetrack. Didn't have a CDL, but you know, I mean, yeah. go to the race, unload the car. Go out in the track and practice. Come in, get out of the seat, change the left rear spring, jump back in the car. That was disappearing. I mean, it was yeah, starting to yeah, be where yeah. you had to have your stuff together. So I went to Bill Kirby. And I says, Bill, I said, I really appreciate what you're trying to do here. I said, but 
I'm just wasting your money. I said, I can't do this. We're not running good. I says, it's just, it's gone beyond what we're doing here. And I think it was a, and he was spending, he was a pretty well off guy and he was spending more money than he wanted to, but yeah. it wasn't enough. I said, unless we can hire a couple of guys and blah, blah, blah. And I says, I just soon, I just don't want to lose your friendship. I'd rather stop. So he said, okay. I think it was a God blessing. For, it was a, you know, it was a blessing for him just to say, I said, we had enough, you know. So that pretty well ended it, you know. Were you officially done at that point in your mind driving, or were you still I don't think hoping so. Hoping to drive at some point? I think, um, yes, I was hoping that somebody would come along. And the way I looked at that deal was, um, we we're going to get back in the, I think Bill did too. He said, well, Larry, before you got hurt, you were starting to run good. And you just, everything was starting to come along. You want to race and, you know, you're getting kind of getting a little bit better at this deal. Cause I'm basically a rookie from Canada that, you know, it started driving in 85, six, seven, eight, that's three years. So I'm still, I was learning every time I went. And I think that we, he thought that he would just put this deal together. We'd go to the racetrack and sponsors would jump right in there and help yeah, us out. Yeah. That didn't happen. Yeah. So we, you know, I just, so then I started building late, late models. I run some races at Concord and, and, uh, uh, Greenville pick and stuff like that. And we just have fun. I mean, it was kind of back to old school, you know, so, and I felt comfortable in that. I, and I, yeah. I think we ran pretty good in that stuff, you know, but. Was going back on the road as a crew chief or crew member an option or did you, immediately start up LP gear. Yeah. Wasn't okay. an option. Okay. Been there, done that. No. Um, yeah, just, uh, in, in, in the last couple of years that I drove Bush cars for Hubert Hansley and for Howard Thomas for the zero zero car during the two or three days in a week that we didn't race, I'd build gears for my competitors, Steve Grissom, and we'd take them to the racetrack and sell them to them. You know what I mean? So it was kind of a, and then when I got hurt, had to make a living. You know what yeah. I mean? It was like all of a sudden had something to do. So uh, then the LP gear and old, and I'll never forget this. Hubert Hensley called me um, when we got hurt, and he called me. He says, "Listen," he said. Now he says, "Any of them gears that you need done?" He says, "I'll come down and do them to help you out, just just so you can get them." You know, I thought that was pretty cool. You yeah. know, so. So yeah, we just started that, and it just it just kind of exploded. It's it's just still a two or three man operation, but we just two weeks behind on work all the time, and we try to do a good job. And we're this year we're winning a lot of races with the late model stuff, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's it's good. Life is good. Are we rich? No, we're not rich, but we're doing what we like. Every morning I go in, I turn the light switch on. I want to be there, and that to me is a win. Are you working exclusively with late model teams, or how wide ranging is your business now? Well, it uh, we did a lot of cup stuff for five six years. Yeah. We every as a matter of fact, every Tuesday we go pick up and deliver to Cale Yarbrough's, Penske, Haas, Cranfus Haas deal. Um, we just made our circle every Tuesday morning and go pick up the gears, drop off the ones we got done, and it was a pretty good gig, you know, just like that. But it got so Hard to get paid. <laughs> so I started doing late model stock, limited late model 
super late model stuff. And when the guys come and picked it up, they paid you for it and thanked you for yeah. doing it. And I said, yeah. man, this is a whole new deal here. <laughs> so we just kind of weaned that out. And, and it's the best thing I ever did because now we can concentrate on these. And it's you're, you're dealing with the grassroots racers, the guys that just eat, sleep, and drink it. Yeah, That's cool. And the phone calls Monday that the stuff worked good. Man, like, you know, like, yes, Monday. I got a phone call from the, the, the fellow that won at uh, Greenville this weekend. We fixed it and finished it Friday night. He come and got it, put it in his car, sends me a picture of the car in Victory Lane. Thank you. Great job. Man, That's you awesome. can't buy that. You know what I mean? So um, we do a lot of that. We do Alabama, uh, Washington State, a lot of uh, West Virginia, Virginia, South Carolina, a lot of South Carolina stuff. People ship it up from uh, date from Florida. You know, just rear end the stuff that we take for granted of what we do to them. But we've kind of got a little niche there right now that's working pretty good. So it's you know it's working okay. You know. Taking the checkered flag and driving to victory lane is the goal for any racer. It tells the competition, my accomplishments resulted in a trip to the winner's circle. It's no different as a business owner, team leader, or coach. Recognizing those deserving is what we do every day at Five Star Awards and Engraving. Hi, race fans. This is Bob Laird, director of sales at Five Star and former Jackman for Buddy Arrington back in the 80s. Laser engraved and full-color corporate awards, as well as crystal, plaques, trophies, and promotional products are just some of a sample of what we offer at Five Star. With state-of-the-art equipment in our North Carolina facility, let our experienced graphic artists take you from idea to concept and ultimately the finish line. To view our beautiful and unique designs, please visit us at fivestarawards.net. The entire project can be completed online. Please reach out to me at bob.laird at fivestarawards.net. 919-954-1130. As a thank you, everyone who contacts me will receive at no charge a collection of NASCAR memorabilia featuring Richard Petty while supplies last. That's bob.laird at fivestarawards.net, 919-954-1130. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. Sandy Estep has been mentioned on this podcast several times before. Of course, she's the mom of my best friend from high school, Joe Estep. And Sandy Estep is the greatest race fan that I know. Sandy has two favorite race car drivers. First would be Richard Petty. Second would be Harry Gant. But third on her list would be Larry Pollard. You hear that, Larry? You've got a solid family. <laughs> At the time, Larry was married to Harry and Peggy's daughter. And because of that connection, she found out about Larry. She found out about his racing career. And so a while back, the last time I was in Nashville, she loaded me up with some of her old racing souvenirs. And sure enough, there was a Larry Pollard hero card amongst all her treasures that became my treasures. I think that's pretty cool. I think Larry thinks it's pretty cool too. All that being said, Larry Pollard had won races as a crew chief. He'd worked for Richard Jackson 
and he was building a solid resume for himself, but he still wanted to drive. And in just his third year in the Bush Series, he wound up driving for Hubert and Jeff Hensley, and he won at Langley up in Virginia in July 1987. And let it be known that Hubert and Jeff Hensley were very competitive individuals on the Bush Series circuit. They did not feel second-rate teams. That win at Langley gave Larry Pollard a fairly notable distinction. Being the noted Bush Series historian that you are, what would that distinction be? I sense some sarcasm here, Rick. I don't know why. Bush Series historian that I am? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not when compared to you, my friend. <laughs> but I think that the distinction would be, and I'm just guessing here, that Larry was the first Canadian to win a Bush Series race, right? You're close. Okay. You're pretty close. He was the first foreign born driver period oh, in a okay. race in all the right series. so that's a pretty big plum prize too I, yeah that's a feather in his cap here is what it's like to try to compete at such a high level larry pollard won for hubert and jeff in 1987 but he still lost that ride at the end of the season because another competitor was bringing a three hundred thousand dollar sponsorship to the table from 1988 so he Not wins a race yeah. And he's out of a ride. Not the first time that money takes over when it comes to getting a ride in any form of motorsports, and particularly in NASCAR. Back in 1971, Charlie Glossback was ousted out of the ride with Junior Johnson because Bobby Allison was coming in in 1972, and he had a sponsorship from Coca-Cola. Not quite as much as we're talking about here. I mean, back then it was $80,000. And that relationship between Junior Johnson and Bobby Allison worked out great. For one year. <laughs> Bobby left at the end of the 72 season and was replaced by Kale Yarborough. And needless to say, that relationship worked out really well. Larry was out of the Hensley ride, but then he got a call from Howard Thomas who owned the very well-known and very successful double zero Thomas brothers country ham car. What a lot of people call just the ham car, right? Another top ride, by the way, Rick, as oh, you well was know, absolutely a oh, top right. ride. Sam Ard made it famous. Then came Jimmy Hensley. So yeah, Brett Bodine. So that yeah. was a big ride, but unfortunately for Larry, that deal only lasted about 10 races before he and Mr. Thomas parted company. He ran one race at Charlotte, kind of a pickup to stay on the winner's circle program. And it was that same weekend at Charlotte that his father-in-law, Harry Gant, broke his leg in an accident during what we call the tire wars. Who's your versus Goodyear? And there were a lot of accidents during that time. Larry filled in for Harry in the Bush Series race at Dover, but he experienced a life-changing accident in that race. You did your commentary in the June 16th, 1988 issue of Winston Cup scene on the NASCAR community's response to Larry and the very serious injuries that he sustained in that race at Dover. And that was our issue of the week back in episode 117. And because Tommy Houston was our interview guest that week, Marty Houston, Tommy's son, joined us as a guest co-host that week. Now, I want to play that segment from that show because not only do you and I discuss your column, about the response to Larry's accident, but Marty also shared 
about how he was the first person to Larry's car and his reaction to what he saw. Your commentary at the front of the paper that week, Steve, was on the racing community's response to an accident that Larry Pollard had experienced in the June 4th Bush Series race at Dover. He was driving in place of his father-in-law, Harry Gant, who had broken his leg at Charlotte. And in this accident, Larry got a broken nose, which on its own sounded bad, but on its own, it's that's not the worst thing that could have happened. Now, however, blood from that broken nose got into his lungs, and that reduced his oxygen intake to just 20% of what it should have been. And on top of that, he also sustained a basal skull fracture. And we know all too well, he was never comatose, but couldn't speak and could only communicate by squeezing people's hands. And a couple of days later, he could speak again. He was taken off the respirator and the feeding tube, and he was upgraded from serious to fair. And Steve, the point of your story was not Larry's injuries, but the racing community's response to them. And Steve, this was amazing. Everybody that just poured out help and offered to help these guys were still in their good wrench uniforms. They came straight from the racetrack to the hospital to check on Larry. RCR crew members, Will Lind and David Smith and Richard Childress himself went to the hospital the night of the accident. And Richard actually sent his plane and pilot back to North Carolina to pick up Peggy Gant and Donna Latham, who were the mother and sister of Debbie Pollard, Larry's wife. Jimmy Hensley and Brett Bodine came to the hospital. And so did Kyle Petty. Larry had actually worked at Petty Enterprises. Larry Pollard had been Phil Parsons' crew chief back in 1983. And team owner Richard Jackson offered to pay for everything. He offered to pay for the hospital bills, the incidentals. He even picked up the cost of flying Larry's parents down from their home in Canada to Dover. Daryl Waltrip said that his plane was available anytime. The car that Larry was driving at Dover was sponsored by Skoll, so U.S. Tobacco's Johnny Hayes, Brian Buckauer, Patty Maycar, and Johnny Bruce were all helping out, making sure that everything was taken care of. Johnny Hayes said in your commentary, it's hard to describe just how you feel to see people caring like that, people whom you might not expect to serve the way that they did. Well, Marty alluded to this earlier. This was the perfect example of NASCAR being a family. Each mm-hmm. person in NASCAR looks after each other. Doesn't make any difference what your name is when things go bad for someone. I don't care if it's Houston or Earnhardt or Pollard. The whole family rallies to your assistance. Yep. You know, Rick, uh, just a quick story that um, I got to Larry's car um, before even the medical crew did. That that wreck at Dover, that had qualified pretty bad and so we had picked pit stall number one so we were at the first pit stall down in uh turn three and four uh coming on pit road and when he wrecked he came down to the inside and stopped there in the grass and uh you know i knew it was larry and we were really good friends with with pollard and as we were with harry and all his family and uh so i took off running down there and which all our crew did but i got there first and and one guy had just got to the wind net and I remember it like it was yesterday. He dropped the window net down and Larry had a face helmet and, you know, he was bleeding out his nose pretty bad and, and he was bleeding out his ears. And, uh, you know, when I saw that and he was kind of slumped over in a seat and, uh, 
it just pretty much I went over to the guardrail and sat down because I thought he was dead, you know, and, and it was it was not something I ran up hoping I could help him. And then the the vision I got was not what I was expecting. So it uh, it rocked me back on my heels, you know, pretty big. And um, but I remember that that was just you, it's funny that you guys are talking about this and how everything's all connected and the whole family deal. And uh, but Steve's right. I mean, at, at that point. I don't know who won the race. I don't know where we finished. Nobody did. Everybody dropped what they were doing and asked what they could do for Larry. And that's, that's, that's one thing I just love about racing in general. Well, there was a scene on the circuit news item in this issue. And it said that Larry was released from the hospital on June 10th, six days after the accident. And <laughs> I kind of had to laugh. Brian Buckauer, who was with us tobacco, he said in this news story, Larry is very conscientious about his diet. No red meat, low calories, and high carbohydrates. The funny thing was, the one thing he wanted while still in the hospital was a Big Mac. So Johnny Bruce went and got him a Big Mac fries and milkshake. Now, Larry (laughs) Pollard is my kind of guy, if that's the first thing on his mind after coming through all this, is a Big Mac. (laughs) You You know what that tells me? It knocks some sense into him. (laughs) (laughs) so larry pollard survived a basal skull fracture which is a miracle in and of itself he and mike alexander were pretty tight before their accidents they were good friends on and off the racetrack larry was injured in june of 1988 and then mike got hurt in december of that same year so steve they were going through the nightmare of a very serious head injury together, comparing notes and trying to figure out how to put the pieces back together and live as normal a life as possible. So imagine what it must've been like to have such a good friend going through basically the same exact thing at the same exact time. It had to be an arduous undertaking for both Mike and Larry. No question about that. I'm thinking it probably took them years to get through it, but it beats the alternative. Larry admitted that it took him about four years to get back to feeling like the Larry Pollard that his wife liked because he, for so long, kept wondering, why me? Yeah, I would too. Well, here's a story that just, when he told it, it just absolutely broke my heart because he went back to Western Speedway in Victoria to run a race, and that's a track where he got his start in racing. So he has made literally thousands of laps there. He knows that track inside and out. Sure. But it was only a few months after his accident and his neck and lungs haven't fully healed. He said he couldn't remember how to turn or brake or anything. And you can just imagine what that must've been like for a proud race car driver like Larry Pollock. It had to be devastating, Rick, no doubt about it, to do all the racing, both on and off the track and in the pits, like Larry had done. Back to his whole life was based on racing. And he comes to a racetrack that he knows so well, and he can't even remember how to turn or brake. I mean, that had to positively give him a hopeless feeling. I think that might have been a low point of his life. Well, Steve, I got to tell you, that was obviously a low point, but... I was just so impressed with Larry during this interview. Number one, Larry has a great voice. Larry could be 
a radio show announcer or a TV show announcer, certainly a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> He's got it on me. I guarantee you that. <laughs> but he had what I thought was a very good recall of detail about different things. So I was very impressed. And he's come a long way back from an injury like that. Well, even before Larry got hurt, he had already been building gears for other teams in the garage. And again, the racing community being what it is, as competitive as it is, after he got hurt, Hubert Hensley offered to pick up the slack and help build the gears for Larry's clients while he recuperated. Something like that is not unusual in NASCAR. Rick, how many times have you heard and told stories about one man or one group helping another who's down on his luck and struggling? Larry was building gears for different Winston Cup and Bush Series teams, but then, amazingly enough, he was having some trouble getting paid and having to jump through those kinds of hoops to get his money. Well, today, he does a lot of work for late model teams. And he says he's not rich, but he's busy and he's happy. And when he turns on the lights at his shop every morning, he wants to be there. And best of all, he gets paid and thanked for the work he does. And judging from where Larry had been to now, I know he's got to be a much happier man. And I think it's a terrific accomplishment. No doubt about it. Hey, race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Rusty Wallace led the 1987 edition of the Budweiser at the Glen at Watkins Glen three times for a total of 63 laps, including the final 28. But it took a very late pit stop for a splash of gas to get him to the checkered flag, 11.8 seconds ahead of runner-up Terry Labonte. Now, ask me, Steve, just how late that pit stop was. Okay, Rick, how late was that pit stop, sir? Rusty Wallace had such a big lead at that time, he pitted on the last lap of the race for a splash of gas you're kidding the last lap the last lap okay and still won the race by nearly 12 seconds over terry labonte 
he had a low fuel light in his car and it blinked on. Uh-oh. On the last lap. Rusty said, with five laps to go, Barry Dotson, who was his crew chief, told me to keep my eyes on the light. I came down the back stretch, downshifted, and hit the brakes, and the light went on. I radioed back that the light was on, and Barry said to come on in. We had a 22-second lead, and we knew we could get in and out without losing the lead. But I was nervous on that stop. I kept the engine barely running while the gas was being put in. But then when I took off, it seemed like the gas wasn't getting to the engine because it was sputtering and popping. I thought I had blown the engine. Man, there were tears in my eyes. Now, this was three years before a pit road speed was instituted. So Rusty hauled it down pit road, screeched to a stop somewhere near his pit stall. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, that might have been the difference right there. Had the speed limits entering and leaving pit road been enforced then, do you think that Rusty could have come out ahead of Terry Labonte? I kind of question it. I would have to say it would have been much, much closer than 12 seconds. Right. I agree. The gas man had to chase the car a little bit, and it looked like there was as much gas on the ground afterward as what actually made it into the fuel cell. Steve, I don't know how much gas he actually added. So that might have been the problem with it sputtering and spitting after the stop. Exactly. Got just enough in. That's all they needed. Whatever we got was all they needed. (laughs) This was the third Winston Cup win of Rusty's career, his first on a track of more than a half mile in length and his first on a road course. He went on that same season in 1987 to win at Riverside, and then in 1988, he won the last race ever at Riverside. Rain forced the postponement of the race from Sunday to Monday, and this was the very first time that NASCAR had to go to its next clear day rule after it had first been issued the year before. The first clear day rules, one of the best things that NASCAR ever did. Used to be, it'd be the next clear weekend, whenever that would be. Can you imagine what the teams might have had to do to leave only to have to come back at least a week later? The time and the expense involved in that. I'm pretty sure they would have impounded the cars out there, but otherwise, that was a whole lot of money those guys would have to spend as a result of the next clear day rule. They didn't have to do that, and that was a good thing. Larry Pollard's win at Langley Speedway in Virginia received all of five lines of coverage in the pit pass section. Yeah, we blew the doors open on that one, didn't we? <laughs> it was buried in the pit pass section. Here, let me read it for you, okay? All right, all right, let's go. Congratulations to Larry Pollard, who won his first Bush Series race August 8th at Langley Speedway in Hampton, Virginia. Pollard, from Victoria, B.C., Canada, was a crew chief for Richard Petty and Phil Parsons before turning to the Bush Series full-time. He is Harry Gant's son-in-law. Well, that says that pretty succinctly, don't you think, Rick? Well, yeah, succinctly is one way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Not your way, I'm sure. Deb Williams had a feature in this issue on Hendrick Motorsports becoming more self-reliant and not purchasing chassis from companies like Hutcherson Pagan, Banjo Matthews, or Mike Laughlin. They were going to build their own chassis. Richard Childress Racing first started that trend 
And then Hendrick Motorsports picked it up in May of 1986. Gary Nelson, who was Jeff Bodine's crew chief at the time, said, we are capable of producing our own cars. We can build a duplicate of what people are selling, and we can build variations. Now, Gary Nelson saying that he's going to build variations? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> One of the masters of variation, I might add. We are a race car building shop now. Whether we have something that's a mistake or something that works out good, we're still learning. It can't do anything but help us in the future. Larry Ift was driving Davey Allison's hauler, and he was nearing Corning, New York, very near Watkins Glen on August 5th, when the hauler was involved in a very serious accident. With Larry were crew chief Joy Knuckles and crew member Devin Barbie, and they had already stopped once to check on the truck's malfunctioning brakes. Joy Knuckles said, just as the town came into view, there was a loud bang and a light flash signaling we had lost the brakes. We were doing about 20 miles an hour when the brakes went. Then, suddenly, we were riding a runaway locomotive. Listen to this. They were going down a hill when the brakes went out, and it was at that point when they spotted a double line of cars stopped at a traffic light at the bottom of the hill. Oh, not good, Rick. Not good. So what Larry did, he veered to the left and onto a concrete retaining wall, which flipped the hauler onto its side. <clears throat> the tractor itself was nearly upside down. Larry sustained back injuries. Joy sustained some pinched nerves in his neck. And Devin had a puncture wound from a hook on the hauler sleeper bed. And he had to be cut from the wreckage. I think those guys were very lucky, Rick. That could have been a lot more serious. Yes, sir. For them and for the people in the cars at the bottom of the hill. Correct. A New York State trooper told the Charlotte Observer, it could have been a disaster. We're very lucky no one was hurt worse than they were. What that guy did, meaning Larry Yift, took a lot of courage. And he's exactly right. Can you imagine being in a truck, speeding downhill with no brakes, Headed for two lines of traffic. You had to make some kind of move. Larry did the right thing. You know, he did basically, uh, Rick, was sacrifice him and his guys to avoid possibly costing the lives of, you know, innocent motorists in front of them. Robert Yates, who was Davy's team manager and engine builder at the time, was looking for his hotel when he saw all the flashing lights from emergency vehicles glowing into distance. He thinks the hotel is on fire, but then comes across the truck on its side. The tractor itself was totaled, but the two cars inside the trailer were salvaged along with enough parts, pieces, and tools to run the race. Now, after all that, that team took that car that had been in that accident. Davey qualified 33rd and finished 17th, two laps down. Not a bad day at all, Rick, when you think what the other results might have been for that team history will forever record on racing reference davy allison qualified 33rd finished 17th two laps down it's just a line of statistics but what it took for them to even run that race right and numbers will never reveal that part of history rick that's the rest of the story dale earnhardt and bill elliott were featured on nbc's the today show on august 4th 
And Dale was not impressed with Bryant Gumbel's questions about his and Bill's run-in during and after the Winston earlier that year. Dale said, on the same show, they've got the guy who is the defending Winston Cup champion, who has won the most races this year, the guy who won the most races a couple of years ago, and a $1 million bonus. And all he wants to talk about is something that happened months ago and nobody cares about anymore. About the only good thing to come out of that show was that Bill and I were sitting there talking together. And that showed we did that instead of walking around cussing each other in the garage area all the time. Well, to defend Brian Gumbel somewhat, he's not a NASCAR expert. He would not know all these things about Dale and Bill. The only thing he knows is the most exciting thing that happened that year, which was the Winston. Naturally, he would gravitate toward that, but I can understand Dale not being too happy and thinking that this is the only thing that he could find to talk about. And I'm not too sure about that thing nobody cares about, the 1987, the Winston. That's what, 35 years ago? We're still talking about it. Still talking about it. Still calling it the pass in the grass when it wasn't, but who cares? Finally. And I've been looking forward to this part. Pappy, your best friend, Tom Higgins, celebrated his 50th birthday in fine style at Watkins Glen. He was presented with a bunch of gag gifts and quote unquote telegrams from well-wishers during a cocktail party at the Corning Museum of Glass. And then Buddy Baker gave him a plaque on behalf of all the drivers. Now, Steve, if you can remember them. I want to hear some stories from that weekend about the shenanigans that you two got into. Well, I don't know how much of that I can go into, Rick, but I can tell you about Pappy's 50th birthday. It turns out that Winston invited the media to a reception at the Corning Museum of Glass. And inside was handsome glass artwork, uh, things like telescope lenses that were huge, and we all retired to an auditorium at the museum, and that auditorium had a stage and a movie screen at the front of the auditorium. And that's when they started celebrating Tom's birthday in some kind of surprise thing. And of course, there were the gag gifts, and Buddy made the presentation of the plaque. They got Tom to come up on stage because they wanted him to say a few things. And Tom was standing behind the MC at the time, and then he disappeared. He was gone. Just in a flash, nobody could see him anymore. He wasn't on the stage anymore. Turns out that Tom had leaned against the movie screen behind him and tore right through it. I mean, he fell right through it, leaving a great big gash in that movie screen. And finally got Tom out of that situation, back up on the stage, and old Tom said, you know, I always wanted to make a big splash on the silver screen but it is not what I had in mind. <laughs> it cost Winston five grand to make that screen new. Hey, I'm Richard Petey. Hi, I'm Ray Evernham. Hi, this is Bobby Labonte. Hello, I'm Terry Labonte. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. 
I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. And Steve, you and I, the past couple of weeks, have been recording our portions of the episode on Sunday afternoons. And you and I had already recorded this week and thought that was going to be it. But then, Steve, I don't even know what to say about this one. It was announced just a few minutes ago that Coy Gibbs, the son of Joe Gibbs, Ty's father, and a former Bush and Truck Series driver himself, he evidently died in his sleep last night. I know. I heard that, and I was shocked. Rich, just absolutely shocked. He was only 49 years old. But think about a blow that has got to be to Todd after being so high after winning that championship and have this happen. I cannot think of a more tragic situation. Well, there are photos of Coy and his wife and Ty's mom celebrating the championship last yeah. night you just don't know what to say but steve that family also lost jd that's a right years ago you just have to feel for the entire gibbs family there is no situation rick that i can think of that's worse because he was a bush series driver and i got to spend a little bit of time around him i got to know coy a little bit but then also one year in particular he went on morgan shepherd's christmas trip in the hills of virginia and yeah. I've got some memories of that one that will never leave me. Steve, it had snowed that week leading into the trip, and it was icy. And it was just terrible conditions to be driving up and down those country roads like we were. But then also, Morgan had had something happen to his motor coach, and it broke down. Uh huh. And so he had to get somebody else to come pick him and everybody else up. And me and Coy and maybe two or three other people stayed behind with the motor coach and Coy Gibbs, he was down on his back in that ice and in that snow crawling up under the motor coach to fix it. That made the biggest impression on me because, you know, a lot of people are going to call Coy the rich kid and people are going to call him this and that, but there he was crawling up under that coach in those kinds of conditions, freezing, trying to fix it and trying to help somebody else. That makes a very good statement of what kind of man he really was. Also that trip, that one in particular was during the days when Morgan had like 15 stops and we would leave before daybreak and we wouldn't get back until almost midnight. And so it made for a long day and there was no lunch mm. factored into the thing. So at one stop in particular, I kind of snuck away from the stop I bet and, went I across, <laughs> and, and went across the street to grab some lunch. Well, there I was and in walks Coy Gibbs <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and I looked at him and we both kind of grinned and we said, you know what? Let's have lunch together. And 
I had lunch that day with Coy Gibbs after he had been crawling up under that truck. Well, that's a great story, Rick. Absolutely a great story. And I really want to repeat once again, this is, I cannot think of a more tragic moment for the Gibbs family than to have this happen when it did. And Steve, I think we need to go ahead and address the 800-pound gorilla in the room and Everybody knows that Ty has been in the news recently and the controversies that he's had. And listen, if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're a keyboard warrior and you want to say that this is just karma coming back to get Ty and all that kind of thing and tell you what you do, if that's the way you think, just scroll on up there to the unsubscribe button and you unsubscribe to our podcast. And you don't need to worry about us anymore because Steve, I don't even have words for somebody who would say something like, I don't even have the words for somebody who would think such a thing, much less say it out loud or pound it out on Twitter. You don't need any more words, Rick. You've said it already. Amen. Coach Gibbs and Ty and the rest of the Gibbs family and organization. I'm so sorry. I don't even know what to say. I am so sorry, and my heart is with you. Hi, Bob. Fire away. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. Uh, one more. Uh, Did you buzz again? Well, no, it, it was just a little loud and kind of popped. Oh, okay. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade.